Thank you, thank you both. Okay, here we go. It is a huge privilege always to speak, and uh, even at short notice. Um, this is uh, one of Jesus' stories. It's the Good Samaritan. As Adrian has just said, this story has had such an impact that you will probably all be aware of the organization called the Samaritans that exists to help people in need. So this story is still working its outworking today. And so I want to um, open our series by looking at the Good Samaritan. Okay. Whew. Tech. Look at that. But first I want to start by telling you one of my stories before I tell you a Jesus story. I want to take you back to... August, end of August, early September 2018, before all things COVID, when we could go out to friends and eat and drink and party without restriction or concern. It was a couple of friends' joint birthday. It was on a Friday evening, and they run great parties. I have to confess, I love a burger. This um, is Tim Brown, formerly a member of this church, and that's my daughter, Abby. She's the Morgan. And together, they comprise of the Morgan Brown Burger. And it is exceptional. It is one of my favourites. Um, and so Friday night, we were set to go to celebrate friends' birthdays, and I was so looking forward to my Morgan Brown Burger. Somehow, I'd managed to double book. And I had a commitment on Friday evening that I couldn't move, much to my wife's displeasure. And so I had a commitment till 10 o'clock on that Friday evening. But let's just say when Morgan Brown are in the house and this sort of party, it ends very late. So I thought, even if we rock up late, it'll be okay. I'll not miss my burger. So we get to Friday, I do my event that my wife's not very happy about, I pick her up at 10 o'clock. Okay, so it's 10pm Friday evening. We're now setting off, Sal's made the, you know, Bonoffe, she's holding that in the car. We set off, we live in Frimley, and just driving past Frimley Park Hospital. And, um, you know, I should have been focused on burger, getting to the party, my wife, who's not really happy, holding the Bonoffe. But out of the corner of my eye, I see what I think is a body lying on the pavement. And I can't drive past those sort of things, even though we're going to a party and it's 10 o'clock on Friday night. So I said to Sal, was that somebody lying down on the pavement? She said, I didn't know, I didn't see. So I got to the roundabout, pulled in, got out the car, walked back. And it was. There was somebody just lying on the pavement. Got down, basically it was a guy in his mid-twenties, he was absolutely paralytic drunk. Um, his wallet was lying by the side of him and uh, so just tried to speak to him but he was making no sense whatsoever. Um, to cut the next two hours down into a couple of minutes, um, I'm not sure what it was to my wife's displeasure, but then I put her in the back of our car with the banoffee pie and put this guy in the front seat next to me. I thought, we can't leave him like this. Couldn't particularly in that moment find out where he lived. He wasn't making any sense. So I actually took him to my friend's party. 
to know me is to love me. Yeah. Took him to the party. There's a younger generation at this party there, and they know things about Facebook. So, you know, with his name, they can start searching, you know, where does this guy live? Got an address in London that turned out to be his parents' address. And my son was like, you're not going to take him to London, are you? Um, anyway, because this gentleman had had a lot to drink, when you've had a lot to drink, it's got to go somewhere. And he wandered out of the car and onto my neighbor's drive and started to get rid of what he'd consumed. And it all got a bit messy. Um, but anyway, we eventually, he started to make a bit of sense. And we found out that he lived in Frimley, probably 700 yards from where I'd picked him up. So we took him back to Frimley. We were in Sandhurst at this point at the party. Me and my wife took him back and there was a combination to get into his apartment. And so trying to get the code out of him, like, what's the combination? After several failed attempts, we got the combination. Anyway, we took him to his room, used his keys to let him in. I put him on his bed and we locked the door behind and I left him. And we got to the party just after midnight but I did get my Morgan Brown burger. We're going to read an excerpt from the Gospel of Luke, that's in the New Testament of the Bible, that tells a sort of a similar story. So let's read it together. There's a little bit of dialogue before we get into the story that Jesus tells. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, Jesus. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? You see, Jesus was this itinerant preacher who had appeared on the scene. There were religious authorities, experts in the law, that thought they understood God and how he wanted them to work. And yet Jesus looked a little bit different from the model that they thought they understood. So this expert in the law, he knew the law, what was written. The law is the Old Testament of the Bible. And he's testing Jesus because he's feeling challenged by some of the things that Jesus has said and taught and done. And some of the people that Jesus has spent his time with. And so this expert is trying to catch Jesus out. He's trying to limit, really, the sense of responsibility that the law brings. And so he's trying to trick Jesus and say, who exactly is my neighbor? You see, the Jews reckoned that a neighbor was a fellow Jew, and some of them brought it down even narrower to, well, my neighbor is a relative who's a Jew. But certainly, if you're not my relative and you're not a Jew, you're not my neighbor. And so trying to limit the scope of what the Bible talked about, what our responsibility should be to neighbors. So Jesus then goes on to tell his story. In reply, Jesus said, so this is, who's my neighbor? Jesus replies with this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he 
pass by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He then put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took need of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus brilliantly, in telling this story, got the expert in the law to answer his own question and find the answer. He started out trying to trick Jesus. Jesus' brilliance turned the thing around. The one who had mercy. So what's the point of the story? I want to really look at it. I think it's about mercy. And mercy is a heart attitude. I'm a fixer. I'm a doer. I'm an activist. And normally, this sort of message would be full of things we can do to help those in need. And that's part of it. But I just felt God, over these last couple of days, pull it right back to say that mercy, before it is an action, it's an attitude. And that God wants to speak to our hearts and check the condition of our hearts this morning. I want to work through these four points. I want to look at the call to mercy. I want to look at the character of mercy, the cost of mercy, and what's the motivation for mercy. So, the call to mercy. It's clear that mercy is a good thing. I hope we would all agree on that in how we respond to people. But is this particular story representative of the Bible's teaching? The Bible has an Old Testament and a New Testament. And so I just want to look at two examples in the Old Testament and then two examples in the New Testament to see whether this concept of mercy is actually a biblically consistent theme. This is from a book called Micah. Micah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and the role of the prophets was often to remind the people of God about what he'd said, because they'd heard it, not always understood it, and worked it out in the right way. So Micah is a prophet. So, in Micah chapter 6, we read these. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, for the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Does it require all those sacrificial things, those animals, all that oil, all of that stuff? Is that what God wants? What does the Lord require of you, of me, of us, as his people? 
to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. In Hosea, again, another prophet reminding the people of God about the heart of God. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. We can very easily get caught up with external religious ritual actions. But actually, what pleases God is a heart response that motivates action and things like justice and mercy and humility. You see, our God is about relationship, first and foremost with him, not rituals toward him, and relationship with those around us. It's, it's relationship, not rituals. So I believe there's a clear biblical consistent call to mercy in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. This book is in the New Testament. It says Jesus' little brother called James. He's an activist. I like James. I want to say he's like me. I'd rather say I'm like him. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? This could have been the law expert. Can such faith save them, grant them eternal life? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Another writer in the New Testament, John. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. I believe there's a clear, consistent biblical mandate to have hearts that move in mercy towards those in need. And that an outworking of our faith is not just religious ritual, but it's actions moved by love and mercy and compassion. So what about Jesus? It's really important to practice what you preach. Otherwise, we're just hypocrites. So, was Jesus practicing what he preached? I just want to give two examples. Could give loads about the ministry of Jesus. Jesus moves moving around, teaching and preaching. In Matthew's account, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Before action moved by mercy, actually the window of our heart is our eyes. Jesus saw them. What do we do when we see need? What's our response when we see need? Jesus saw them and he had compassion on them. That was a crowd. Jesus was famous for healing many people and feeding thousands of people. He saw their need. It moved him inside. The original language is like his bowels moved. 
I could say more about that, but I won't. It's been one of those weeks. That's been our week in our house. And then he did something about what he felt. In Luke chapter 7, it wasn't just the crowds. You see, we're a crowd here. We're a small crowd. But Jesus sees every individual in this room and knows everything about you. I don't want that to scare you. I want it to encourage you. And so you feel loved. And he knows your name. He knows your circumstances. And he knows everything about you. Jesus, in an account in Luke's gospel. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a a town called Nain. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So the only son of the mother, and she was a widow. In that culture of the day, the husband was the provider. She was a widow. She had no husband. She would look to her son for provision, and now he's dead. She was destitute and in bad straits. When the Lord saw her, starts with your eyes. His heart went out to her, literally. He was moved internally. And he said, don't cry. What does mercy look like? From the story, have I missed a slide here? No, I haven't ever. It's all right. When we were preparing this last night, Dave and I, we missed a slide. What does mercy look like? So I think there's a call to mercy that is clear in the Old Testament, clear in the New Testament. It's practiced by Jesus. What does it actually do? I think it draws alongside people, as we saw in the story. The Samaritan stopped and got alongside. It meets felt needs with deeds. There is action involved. And so it met the needs of the person. He dealt with his wounds. He picked him up. He took him to an inn for restoration. He cared for his ongoing care. It helps the whole person. Often need is multifaceted in our days. And it's not judgmental. At this point, it's worth commenting because there were two that walked right past this guy on the road. Why did they not help? The commentators can construct some reasons why they might not have helped. The first was a priest. And so actually, it was his religious responsibility to help those in need. This road was from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a dangerous road and they were robbers. It may have been that he was on his way to a party and he didn't want to be late because he didn't want to meet his burger or whatever he was going to eat that night. Or he knew he'd be in trouble if he was late getting home. So his agenda stopped him from getting involved. A priest needed to needed to keep ritually clean. And so this body might have been a dead body and that would have made him ritually unclean and not able to practice his priesthood. One could say he was choosing one aspect of his priesthood over another aspect of his priesthood. So commentators try to genuinely, genuinely give good reasons why the priest might have stopped. The Levite. The Levite were a tribe of people out of which the priests came. Again, perhaps he was just busy. Perhaps he didn't see. Perhaps he didn't care. But for whatever reason, Jesus cites two people who really should have had motivation and reason to stop. And then he pulls out the ace card of the Samaritan who did stop. 
Because if you're not aware, there was intense rivalry between a Jew and a Samaritan. So bring it right down to a trivial level. A good Saturday in our house, we're from Sheffield, is when Sheffield Wednesday win and Sheffield United lose. That's a great day. It's a good Saturday. You get up on a Sunday morning feeling, God is good. Um, That sort of rivalry in sport is mirrored in Liverpool and Manchester and all over the UK. That's at a very trivial level. The saying goes that the Jew would rather step on the Samaritan than step over the Samaritan. This was a rivalry. Jesus' genius is superb here. The one who, with no race obligation, religious obligation, or even desire obligation to stop, to help, actually did. That's the kicker. So, the character of mercy. It draws alongside. He got off his donkey, he stopped, he helped. It met his felt needs. It helped the whole person and his own prejudice did not get in the way. We should not be those who let age, gender, race, religion, class, education, status or wealth prevent us from getting involved. We must be non-judgmental and able and willing, if God so leads, to get involved. Moving on, the cost of mercy. This cost the Samaritan his time. I don't know what his plans were, but his plans changed. It says he took him to the inn and he met his needs. He stayed with him that night. He didn't just think, gosh, I'm busy. Right, let's get him to the nearest hospital, the nearest place. Right, um, I've picked him up. I've put some um, wine. That's alcohol. That'll clean his wounds. A bit of oil on. It's over to you now. I've done my bit. No, it looks like he stayed with him overnight. The next day, the text says, he left instruction and he left finance to say, will you continue his care? I will come back. So he delegated out to others who could help as well. And he said, the bill doesn't go to him, the bill comes to me. I will settle it. It cost this man time. It cost him money. I'm going to break one of my own preaching rules. Normally you only say what's in the passage. That's a standard preaching rule. The passage doesn't talk about reputation. But out of some of my experiences, I believe there's a reputational risk when you step out. I've helped a number of people try and overcome addiction, both alcohol and drugs. And there was a particular guy who was helping, and he would drink eight to ten cans of Fosters a day. And uh, that, was his, um, that was his alcoholism. And he was not working and he was on benefits. And he would buy his Fosters in a four-pack. Um, well, that's about five quid, it's about 125 a can. Um, and actually, like anything, if you buy in bulk, it's cheaper. And when you've got limited money, but he didn't have the means to buy in bulk, he didn't have a car. And so I became an expert um, on the cost of Fosters in Camberley. I could tell you where all the manager's deals were and where you could get the cheapest per 100 uh, millilitres of Fosters. I became an expert. So on a Monday on my day off, I would often be seen in Sainsbury's with often 424 packs because you, you get through a lot of lager um, buying them. And it did cross my mind. I thought, what if somebody's visited the church? 
And they shop on a Monday, and it's like, oh, Drew's in Sainsbury's again, he's got another 60 cans of Fosters. He seems to get through a lot of Fosters. If you know me as well, my attachment to my reputation is not very strong. I actually couldn't give a flying what anybody thought, because I was seeking to help somebody out. And in that instance, for 18 months, I almost daily delivered alcohol to do alcohol reduction with this guy. I'd love to say that it's a success story. Managed to wean him off 10 cans a day to one. That's what he told me. The shocking discovery to me 18 months down the line was he was buying it behind my back. And I thought I'd got him down to two cans of lager and he was still drinking the same. That was a massive disappointment for me. But it's not stopped my motivation to continue to help people in need. And what I can say, that guy today is a functioning alcoholic. And recently, he showed me a photograph that he'd been saving. That was his five-year long-service photograph at the Builders Merchants, where he's a shop floor assistant. We got him into work. He's working to this day. We're still working on the alcohol, but he has held a job for five years. And he is the longest-serving employee in that Builders Merchants. And so... These are long journeys sometimes. They're not just sorted like that. The cost of mercy will cost you time. It will cost money. And it may cost your reputation. Jesus certainly suffered at the hands of his reputation. So, the motivation for mercy. Why do we do it? Why do I do it? I want to take you back to that weekend in August, September. So we'd had the Friday night, dropped that guy off back in his flat, in church, just like this, Sunday morning. Fine, what time is it now? 43, oh gosh, right, okay. Um, Sunday morning, in church, been working with another uh, single mom, um, who sadly had recognized her illness and addiction and had given her four children up to social services. And she was struggling. At 12.30 on the Sunday morning, I got a text from her mom who didn't live in Camberley. We'd helped her get into a one-bedroom one flat and she lived in Lightwater. And the text read, please could you contact me as soon as you're free. Uh, my daughter's taken an overdose and she's in the hospital. I know you've got a key to her flat. Um, can we meet? Because we've got to get the cats out um, because they're locked in the flat. Not a text you want to receive. Normally, Sunday afternoons in our house, it's food, it's football, and it's sleep. Just being honest, um, that's how we roll. Um, so that's the Sunday afternoon gone. So I drive up to uh, Lightwater, I meet this lady's mum. And um, I'm trying to keep the names, I'm not going to mention names, because this stuff goes out online, and I just want to be honouring, and I want to be careful, okay? So the, the lady in question had asked me to hold a key. I'd helped her with a lot of stuff. And so I had a key, but unfortunately, uh, the paramedics who took her away had double locked the door and we couldn't get into the flat. And then out of the blue, a guy at the end of the block steps out. Um, now, I don't think he's here. He should have been here this morning, but he's had a tooth extraction and his, his tooth's gone really bad. His name is Will. I didn't know that then. This guy stepped out of the flat and he said, what, what, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm trying to get in because there's cats locked in, uh, but we can't get in. He said, well, the bedroom window's open and the guy in the bungalow next door has got a ladder. 
I'm a painter and decorator. I'm used to going up ladders. And let's just say I have, with permission of the owner, broke into a number of houses over the years using a ladder and an open window. That's a confession, all right? I'm just, in case anybody comes for me, I've not ended up in prison yet. So we duly went round, got the ladder, put the ladder up, and went uh, through the window. And Will came with me. He had cats, so he'd got cat, cat baskets. Have you ever tried to catch cats that don't want to be caught? <laughs> Flipping heck, it's a nightmare. What does, what does being a good Samaritan, what does mercy look like? It's not always picking somebody up from the side of the road. It's really practical stuff. My afternoon was climbing through a window, catching these blessed cats, which Will did, to be honest. I was like, I'm not going near them things, because they want to scratch me. Um, and I'm just trying to help them here. It's like, your dinner tomorrow relies on me getting you into that basket. But the cats were having none of it. Anyway, we got them in the basket, we got them down the ladder, we got them out. Time doesn't permit, and if you want to know the end of that story for that girl, it's incredibly sad but I'd be happy to tell you that privately. But I bumped into Will that afternoon by just responding to that practical need. I've had a three and a half year friendship with Will. Will came to our carol service on the 19th of December, had an encounter with Jesus and became a Christian. I was hoping he would be here, but he's not because of his tooth. But I know I can say this because the last time I preached, I publicly asked him to come and share his testimony which was that he'd been struggling with weed addiction for years. And on the 19th of December, God stepped in and broke it like that. Now that's exceptional. I've been praying that for my other foster drinking friend for six or seven years. But actually, Will's testimony, and at the point I preached last time, he was three weeks clean. What day is it today? Is it the 19th? 20th. Yesterday. Four months clean. Right, three weeks. Oh, yeah, he's doing well, isn't he? Won't last. Four months. Four months clean. Okay, I know I have his permission to tell that. You might be thinking, oh, gosh, if I start coming to this church, all my things are going to be shared from the platform. <laughs> might be. But I, I didn't do a lot for Will over these last three and a half years, I don't feel, apart from be his friend and journeyed with him. And actually... He had an encounter with Jesus. His addiction has been broken. He's found freedom. Our new mission statement is we're here to help people. Know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, make a difference. By being his friend and just helping somebody else in need, I met him, I've built a relationship with him, I've helped him, and now he knows Jesus. And he's found freedom from a life-controlling addiction. We're talking about What's your purpose in life? And he's got some thoughts about that. I think he's going to make a massive difference when God gets hold of him. Let me just sum up. What's the motivation for mercy? Is it duty? I don't believe it is. Is it guilt? It shouldn't be. I believe it's a heart of gratitude. You see, I stood in the exact same need of a saviour. Perhaps my life has not gone the same way of some of the examples that I've given you this morning, but my need was no greater. The band wanna start and come back, please. My need was no greater. I needed a saviour. And I've had an encounter with Jesus, and I've found freedom, and he's helping me make 
a difference. I do what I do. We do what we should do. I think because we need to be aware and look for need. We need that to move our hearts with mercy and compassion. And then let that outwork itself in acts of kindness without judgment to those that brings, God brings across our path. I'm not preaching this this morning to make you feel guilty. I'm not preaching this this morning to set out your Christian duty. Jesus wants your heart before he wants your diary and your wallet. Mercy is an attitude before it's an action. And let's let Jesus have the last word. Go and do likewise. I realise we're nearly at 12. I don't want to extend this. For me, what we've just sung is the motivation for mercy. It's a response to the gratitude of God and the goodness that I've received. That's why I do what I do. That's why I believe Jesus was encouraging us to do what we should do. Not out of guilt, not out of duty, but out of a heart of gratitude for all that God has done for us. I really believe it starts with what we see, what that does in our hearts before it extends to action. But I know there will be activists out there. So if you want to say, I'm seeing need, I'm feeling moved, what can I do? Have a conversation with me after. We have a joint churches initiative that is BSOM, which is a food bank. We have a debt and benefit advice service that we run out of the church with others. I'm a trustee of something called the Hope Hub, which partners with the local council to prevent homelessness, a statutory duty of our, of our council. And there's a faith charity that is at the heart of providing that need. If you're like, I'm seeing need, I'm feeling need, how can I express it? Have a conversation with me. Right now, you just turn on your screens. There's a massive humanitarian need. I'm not saying all give, all go. I'm saying pray to God and see what his response was to me. The scene that moved me the most was a scene, I think, in a Berlin train station where refugees were coming off the train and there were families just simply stood with a cardboard, cardboard placard with a number on it. And that was the number of people they could take to their home. I'm not saying that's what you've got to do. I'm not here to guilt anybody to do that. That moved me. They saw a need. It moved them inside and they said, and it was just five. It wasn't like, oh, let me have a look at what your kids like, you know. It was just a number. And the thing that impressed me so much, there was more resource than there was need. And it's often the other way around. So, you might be here. You might be saying, I want to do something. I'd love to chat with you further. You might not know Jesus. And right at the start of this passage, it was like, what do I do to get eternal life? And you could misunderstand this. It's like, oh, I look after needy people and that gets me to eternal life. I've not had time this morning to explain the whole story. That's not the point. But if you'd like to talk about that more, I'd love to have a conversation with you. And if you need to find freedom, you'll only find it in Jesus. You're like a circle that floats around me Keeping me safe and sound And when I fall, you've tied a rope to me You're blessing me every day